Hi, welcome to 1001 Books, the podcast where we read the 1001 books the experts say you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they are really worth your time. I'm Chelsea, a lover of fantasy with a strong female lead and a new mom desperately trying to find time to read. And I'm Nicole, a lover of fiction about social issues that really makes me think. Yeah, and we are super excited for our 57th book this week. Woo-woo! But before we get to that, what are you reading lately? A really great book that I finished recently was called The Relentless Moon by Mary Robinette Cowell. So this is a, a the third in a series that I've recommended on the podcast before. The first one is called Calculating Stars. And then there's, um, which is, which it's kind of like um, feminism and alternate history and the space race and global warming all wrapped up in a wonderful combination and the first book is like they try to get to the moon and then the second book they're trying to get to Mars and then the third book is about what's happening on the moon colony when they're trying to when the other character is going to Mars the main character and it's like a lot of like espionage and stuff like it's very different from the other books but super fun um so yeah just those that series is outstandingly good and everyone should read it yeah I've read the first book yes yeah yeah So, and then I'm reading, I just finished The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. And I, Neil Gaiman is like a big name in kind of magical realism. Some of his books and some of them are fantasy. He like toes the line. And this one was more um, magical realism where it was like, uh, a boy who some crazy things happen to him as, him as a child, but he forgets them every time he leaves his family's home and just lives a normal life. And so it's like kind of intertwined. Mm. Um, and I, someone recommended this book to me like seven years ago and I didn't read it because I was being a brat because I didn't trust their book recommendation and I really enjoyed it. And so uh, that's my own bad. Uh, <laughs> but I listened to it on audiobook and Neil Gaiman himself narrates it. And oh, it was cool. just a really good book. So I, um, mm. yeah, you know, live and learn. That just reminds me of like I used to if someone like recommended like a movie to me and they really, really like strongly recommended it to me, I'd have this like, no, I'm not watching it. And, and of course that's really annoying to other people. And then I noticed that I was complaining about my dad doing that same thing. (laughs) And so I was like, I was like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't do the thing and be such a hypocrite. And then I've tried to stop and just accept recommendations. And I have a hard time. I have a big, among my anxiety hookups, hangups one of mine is uh about like disappointing people or like giving thanks or feedback to people like it makes me very anxious like they'll think it wasn't enough or it wasn't genuine or blah 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 blah. so when people recommend things to me if I don't have a really stable relationship with that person I'm not comfortable reading it because what if I don't like it and Mm -hmm. it makes them upset and I know Mm -hmm. that that is very dumb but i just like but i I could see why that would be like tied in with your garden variety social anxiety yeah yeah, you know i just real real talk here uh uh, (laughs) introvert at its finest yeah the other thing that's going on with my reading life is that so something i noticed during the like lockdown part of the pandemic um over like the last year and a half is that i like did chose like started a book and didn't finish it so many times because it was just like if it didn't get me in like two pages done next book yeah <laughs> um especially because i was reading all ebooks that i could get immediately because the library was closed or just harder to access 
And and so I had so many books, I just immediately like, nope, nope, nope. And my TBR like shrunk because of that, because I was really blowing through it. And then I recently, I've gone back to getting paper books out of the library and I and I got my first big stack, you know, mm-hmm. like I requested too many. And I didn't finish two of those. And I was like, maybe this is a permanent change. A habit that you just have now. Yeah, I was, one of them was an Agatha Christie novel, um, Endless Night, which I really like her and I've read lots of them. But this one just didn't get me. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was seemed like a long buildup at the beginning. And then the other one was by Min Jin Lee, who wrote a book I really loved, um, about like Korean immigrants in Japan, like over generations that I really loved. And this is one of her early, earlier books. And, um, I was just like, all these characters are so like, I don't like any of them. I want them all to like, not get what they want because they're so terrible. And I, and I just, I, I read like a hundred pages, but I still was like, nope. (laughs) So I, this is one way I've permanently changed from the pandemic. That's how you've changed as a reader. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't noticed any big changes like that, but I, um, it definitely feels like I have the bandwidth to read again. I was just bragging before we recorded that I read eight books in the month of June, which would put me on track for my normal more than a hundred books. But you know, I haven't read eight books a month at all. Well, you this did year. have a, a newborn, so, yeah. <laughs> so you get a pass this year. <laughs> I'm just feeling like back in the groove, and it's really nice. So, um, moving on to our book for the week. Um, our book this week is, uh, everything that rises must converge by Flannery O'Connor. Um, and it is a series of short stories. Um, she is an American author from the South, uh, and she, Georgia, and she, um, I do think this is important too. She was a very devout Catholic, Mm -hmm. which plays into some of her short stories in this book. And it was published in 1956 and there's about seven i think short stories yeah. included in published it. after her death yes posthumously yes i just like that word <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to say that because i'm never sure of the pronunciation <laughs> i think it's posthumous no i think you're right but i'm always like posthumously posthumously Ooh, i don't know i don't yeah no nah. <laughs> i just went for it <laughs> Say it with confidence. It's yeah, good. that makes it seem like you uh, know. So <laughs> if you had to have a one-word description for this book, what would you say? Okay, I'm cheating a little bit here, but I'm going to say intergenerational contempt. And I'm going to say depressing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the quick plot? So this is a series of short stories that are Southern. They're Gothic. They deal with racism. They deal with death. They're very dark. And we're going to go on from there. Yeah, etc. cetera. <laughs> Yeah, and so before we started recording, you mentioned you did not read the um, introduction. Mm -hmm. So I read the introduction, um, and essentially this woman, Flannery O'Connor, she uh, passed away young from lupus, and she spent the majority of the last years of her life in a lot of pain, and she had been pretty predominant on, like, this set of authors with this set of people who were publishers and authors in the South, um, and then kind of had to remove herself from society for like the last six or seven years of her life because she was just slowly dying from lupus, which is tragic. Um, and so the introduction was a predominant, um, uh, translator of the time he would translate his classical works and he, she had lived with him and his family and he was just so, uh, over the top, like 
very like flattering of her and her writing and so as i was reading it i was like it's not gonna be this good this is just this is a gnomon this is not (laughs) gonna be my type of work and lo and behold we started reading and there's a lot of dark deaths in this book yeah like a child dies in practically every story a a child or an old person (laughs) yeah a child hangs himself trying to um fly to the space to see his mother who he's decided lives in the stars while his father has been trying to raise another boy it was just yeah uh it was there's a lot you know a kid beats her grandfather to death uh yeah uh, a son is taking his mom to like a on the bus to a class and she has a stroke <laughs> and, and uh um, another guy decides yeah. that he just he he's failed as an artist so he's going to um he must be wasting away and it turns out that he's just has a disease that he's slowly gonna just be sick for forever but not die from yeah and he's disappointed it's <laughs> it's it's there's i mean it makes this book was published after her death so i am assuming that she wrote or at least finished the refining of these stories while she was knew her own death was coming so it's it's pretty direct so, yeah, I, th- I do agree with you. I think she was kind of processing a lot of those things around her death. I do think that um, there is something complimentary I can say. I didn't dislike her writing style. No, I didn't. Like, yeah. I liked the way she wrote things. I didn't necessarily like the book or the stories or a lot of that that we're going to get into. But I did enjoy her. the way she wrote was very easy to follow. It was very easy to read. You got involved with her characters quickly. Like, you had a good picture of them within mm-hmm. these short stories, which isn't always a case. Um, so there is something to be said for her being a good writer. Yeah. And and I felt like it was a really cohesive collection because mm-hmm. not just the death thing, but there was other themes that played out through every single story, which sometimes you read a collection of short stories and it's really disjointed. Yeah. So I think that speaks well to, like, you know, the collection. But um, the reason I said intergenerational contempt is because a lot of the books, a lot of the stories to me kind of centered around either the parent or the adult child and how they don't understand the, you know, their child or their, their parent um, mm-hmm. and, and how they resent them for that. And they just can't, you know, they can't like the young, either the younger person is saying, Oh, my parent is so racist and I have it so figured out and I completely understand how the races should be equal. But reading it from a 2021 perspective, it's like, no, no, you don't. I'm close. Like it's very white saviory. Yeah. And, and then, or the parent is resenting that the kid, uh, the adult kid like doesn't want to take care of the farm or like, you know, or is, is it does accept people of other races more than they do just over and over and over again. And so then when I finished the stories, I was like, huh, was how racist was Flannery O'Connor in real life? Because this is the fifties, you know, yeah. she died in the fifties. And I, so I started doing some, you know, Wikipedia, Wikipedia Googling and stuff. And basically it was like, Oh, people write like their PhD about if Flannery O'Connor was racist or not, because her books show a race consciousness like she's she's worked done some of the work like maybe mm-hmm. for her time a significant amount of work but um for a white person in the south uh but it there's like lots of things like in her letters and stuff where she in real life was pretty racist mm. and it's just you know like how much do you give someone a pass for being from of their time and how much don't you like uh because it's like oh her you could read her stories of like she gets it 
this is she's she's making fun of these people. She is condemning them. But I don't think that's actually the right interpretation. I think yeah. she's more it's more observational. Like these are problems that are going on at the people that I know. Yeah, I don't think she's making a it doesn't it didn't read to me like she was making a judgment of which one was right and which one was wrong. It was more that she saw that it was there. Yeah. Exactly. Um and which there- maybe was profound at the time. Like for a Southern author. And yeah, I am going to say that like this book had more instances of the N word. Yes. Than... It was like Huckleberry Finn practically. That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> I was like, it was so bad. And then if it wasn't using the N word, it was always using like, um, Negro, like mm-hmm. constantly too. like, that was the nice version, which it was. I know, time. but yeah. it just, it just, it was so, um, it was so predominant in the book. Yeah. Like, I don't think you ever went more than three pages without an N-word. Yeah. The story that made me the most angry was one where, like, it was from the perspective of the adult kid and he had come home to the farm and his um, and he was the one who, like, wanted to die. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to have one last profound moment. And he was remembering the last time he was home, he worked in the dairy on the farm for, like, a week with the two paid staff that were black. And he remembers that they shared a cigarette together and it was so profound, like the perfect mingling of the races or whatever. And he wants to do that again. And then he's like unable to. Uh, and it was just like, I don't. And then like the, the two guys come to see him while he's in his sick bed because he asks for them because he wants to recreate this moment. And they're just nice to him because he's their boss's son. Mm-hmm. But he takes it as like, we have a deep connection. And it's just like, I feel like, in all of the stories, but especially in that one, black people aren't treated like they have a rich internal life. No. <laughs> They're treated like objects for the white person's storytelling. And it's so obvious. And it's it's uh, it's cringy. It's I like it's hard to read. Well, and it was like there was another scene where reading it from a twenty twenty one perspective, I can't remember what short story it was in, but it was um a two um black maids or workers were complimenting uh um a character in the story over and over and saying how good she was and how great she was and how amazing she was and um the character's internal dialogue was oh you can't trust a black person's opinion but as a 2021 observer you're like no 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 their livelihood they're saying that because they, they're, yeah, they have to, to be safe. They're being nice to you because <laughs> it's required of them. Yes. Yeah. And and if they had not been nice with you, like, you would have hated them and something terrible could have happened. Yeah. Like, so you're hating them for doing the thing that you forced them into. Yeah. It was very, like, uh, it was, it was an interesting, like, it seems like, because it seems they're so observational, it's like, it is a good snapshot and, like, this is what people, white people in the South, really were thinking like right before the civil rights movement or right as it mm-hmm. was beginning. And uh, which is really interesting. And it is interesting to see the generational divide that the young people really thought, I get it, but they still totally believed in the separation of their races. Yeah. Uh, and the old- and they felt very... Um- Righteous. Yes, that was what I was thinking. <laughs> the book is dripping in righteousness. People feeling righteous about yeah. their opinions. Yeah. So that that part is really interesting. It's just it's tough to read because it it doesn't it doesn't like you want it to go just like one step further mm-hmm. and it doesn't do that. I don't think. And, um, and it's so dark. Yes. <laughs> On top of like the complexities with 
that the race within this book it's just like it feels almost like she was trying to which is why I think it's important to note that she was a devout catholic it feels almost like she was trying to write parables yeah mm -hmm. um like totally mm -hmm. you think you failed in your life uh and you're you're succumbing to your death well jokes on you life is a misery like like it or like um you uh, aren't happy with your son so you try and idolize this other child and make him into your son and it ends up that your child ends up dying because you should have been happy with what you had like it felt like she was trying to write parables um but it was like the Grimm's fairy tale version of parables <laughs> where they were really dark in a way that um didn't leave a lot of compassion or hope or anything in them yeah, which is interesting with the timing, right? Because I always think, like, when I think about 20th century literature, it's like, oh, everything's going to be so great. World War One happens. Everything is terrible and meaningless. Depression, you know, World War Two, And then after World War II, it's, it's usually like an uplift. We, we have faith in the future again. Mm -hmm. Things are good. If we just hold on to our value, you know, like, in a, especially in American literature. And this, this like, contradicts that because it's in that post-war period. Mm -hmm. But it's really it's pretty negative about the outlook on the future. Yeah. And I wonder if that has something to do with being in the South at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, this book left me, some of the books in the podcast are outrightly so awful that it's clear that like, not even irregardless of being on the list. I'm like, nobody needs to be reading this. <laughs> well it's it's um but this book was a weird like i think there was value in reading it um but i also did not enjoy it i felt very self-conscious of how often um like ashamed of what the south looked like in our country less than 100 years ago like well that's the thing is that the only the only way it really made me think is that it just makes you think that, like, people in the South or people here or people, you know, like, you see, well, particularly on the South, right, you know, like, there's a certain characterization that people not from the South have about Southerners, white Southerners. And, but we're, but it's like, it's just a reminder that we probably don't really have the whole people picture, not mm -hmm. to say that they get a free pass, but just that it's probably more complex. Um and of course, it's individual level, you know, like, but as a whole, like more um, that it's like, oh, it's like the that this that race stuff 70 years ago is still here. And what form is it taking right now in the descendants of the people in this book if they had been real? I don't know. And you know, and that's interesting to me. But I agree that I think your time would be better spent reading a more recent book about race in America if you want to read a book like this. And I think that... Um... I'm not sure, this is something I've been thinking about with the podcast books, I'm not sure when there's books like this where there's inherently a lot of issues with how a race is characterized and how, um, in, in, and sometimes in these books too, how gender is characterized as well. We come across that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, how much is it worth reading fictional accounts Whereas if we want people to be getting a picture of the era, could they just be reading, like, a historic? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean maybe fiction is more. Oops, more accept. Maybe fiction is more accessible. Yeah, but it's it's just I wonder like, 
if I'm asking someone to read a book that is so blatantly uh, racist, even if it is just looking at a picture of the time, would their time be better spent reading a nonfiction account of the time rather than reading um, this fiction where I just, the number, I just couldn't get over that number of N-words. I just really couldn't. And I like, I I felt like I hadn't been shocked by that in a long time. And I was just like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you definitely have a point. And, And I think it's, I feel like sometimes other books we've like put on the list because we're like, it's a good example of this. Or what if it's the only book like this? Or this one is so famous. But, you know, the per- the group who made the original 1001 books list, like they're making that saying like, this is the canon, mm-hmm. the worldwide canon. And I feel like it's fine if we rip up half the books on the can. Like we, yeah. we should get to decide what the canon is for, you know, um, not just because older people or a hundred years ago these were the best you know books or whatever i do have a fun fact before we uh reveal our choices which i think we've kind of made clear but um that something i learned about flannery o'connor when i was reading about her was that she really loved peacocks oh and that um she and her mother um had like dozens of peacocks and peahens that they would raise and just would wander their farm which i you guys can't see nicole's face but um nicole hates birds especially peacocks because i've lived next to a person like that when I, and and peacock they're so loud they're really hard to live next so, to so uh just so you know flannery o'connor really enjoyed peacocks well no wonder peacocks. i i should have known that i wasn't gonna be into her books she's a bird person <laughs> yeah um so do we think this book should be on the list no no <laughs> i do think there's a case to be made for people who are like historians and delving themselves into like Mm -hmm. what Georgia and Alabama and the deep South were like in the 1950s and using this kind of fiction because it is so just like observational instead of opinioned, um, get reading this in their like breadth of gaining knowledge about it. But I don't think it is a book that everybody needs to read. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, it just man. isn't. All right, well there we go. Yeah, book closed on this one. I know. Uh, I thought so. I wanted to bring up so last episode we talked about Bleak House and we both said there's like a BBC miniseries of Bleak House and we're like, oh let's watch the first episode and talk about it. Um, and so I have to confess that I started watching the first episode last night and I didn't finish it because it was so boring. <laughs> yeah, same. I started it like four days ago and I watched the first twenty minutes. I think I made it like 30. Uh, what was interesting, though, in that 30 minutes is that, you know, we talked about how Bleak House, they spent 200 pages introducing all the characters because there's like dozens and dozens of characters. And they basically get all those characters in in the first 30 minutes of the series. And they're just like, the editing is crazy. Just over here, over here, quick, 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 new person, new person. And they're hard to tell apart even when you can see their faces. Yeah. Um. So I was I was just like, they didn't want to simplify it at all for the show. No. No, it's so I could say I think it's probably a pretty good adaptation, meaning that they hit every single sentence in the book. I mean, BBC but, usually does that well. Yeah, but I, I can't recommend it. I I think the book was more interesting. Yeah. On the show. Yeah. Um. Well, on that note, I mean, that's kind of our episode. Yeah. What's our next book for book uh, fifty? Our next book is Chrome Yellow by mm. Aldous Huxley. 
Okay. I've read Brave New World in high school. Mm-hmm. That's the last time I thought about That's him. That's all I know about him. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> we will get on to that next week. But until then, you can find us at at 1001 Books Podcast on Litzy and Goodreads, at 1001 Books Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at 1001 Books Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, happy, happy reading. reading.